You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's denying Call me Mr. Boy's best friend is his mother. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great couple of weeks. I relaxed, got a suntan, read and watched a lot of stuff on this month's topics. So yeah, pretty much just frenetically read and wrote when I wasn't doing the paying job. So, you know, I guess it took like half a break from the podcast last week. But, you know, I'm not a full one because my type A-ness will not let me do that. We're going to skip movie theater movie reviews for this month as these episodes are all looking like long, long boys. And I don't really want anything distracting from this topic as it's a very important one, not just for film history, but American history as a whole. And it shows just how fragile our democracy can be. I swear this will not be boring. And it is a very important topic. Really listen. You should just don't skip this one. This is a very, very important topic for all history. I'll make it seem real smart at parties. I have already been info dumping all of this on my friends. It's this is a very important topic. I read all the boring parts of it, so you don't have to if you want to. Sources are in the show notes as always. This month, we're doing our first deep dive into a specific period in Hollywood history. It is finally time to cover the HUAC hearings on Hollywood, a time where McCarthyism and a committee empowered by the public's fear of communism raged across the United States with unconstitutionally unchecked power trying to prove that communists had infiltrated American institutions. The hearings that occurred over goings-on in Hollywood, which would quickly devolve into witch hunts, eventually led to a blacklist, which barred hundreds of artists and performers from ever working in show business again. But for those who cooperated with HUAC, their participation in the hearings would amplify their careers in many cases, both in and out of Hollywood. This week, we're covering the hearings themselves and the events that enabled them to occur. In future weeks, we'll look at what happened to those who cooperated with HUAC, what happened to those who didn't, and the legacy that the hearings and the blacklist left in its wake. Let's get into it. It all ramped up after World War II, when Washington, D.C. placed Hollywood in its scope, trying to seek out communist artists whom they believed wanted to take over Hollywood and taint the United States with films steeped in their communist ideals. What happened next would rock Tinseltown for decades to come. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. you remember the Screenwriters Guild? Mr. Stripling, the rights of American labor to inviolably secret membership lists have been won in this country by a great cost of blood and a great cost in terms of hunger. Are you now, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Chairman, uh, first I should like to know whether the quality of my last answer was acceptable since I am still on the stand. This had nothing to do with your last oh, answer, the last I question. See. This is a new question. I now. see. 
Mr. Stribling, you must have some reason for asking me this question. You, you can address the committee. Uh, I understand that the members of the press have been given an alleged Communist Party card belonging to me. Is that true? No, that's not true. You're not asking the question. I was. The chief investigator's asking the I question. Now, are you or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? I believe I have the right to be confronted with any evidence which supports this question. I should like to see what you have. Oh, well, you would. Yes. Well, you will pretty soon. <laughs> the witness is excused. Impossible. Let's set the scene. It's post-World War II and the U.S. and the Soviet Union, the last two majorly powerful nations left in the wake of the war, begin a Cold War that will last until the early 1990s. This occurred because the Soviet Union was trying to make nations surrounding them into communist nations as well. Seeing this, the U.S., knowing this would be bad for their economic bottom line, amongst other things, then attempted to quote-unquote contain communism to where it was, but would allow it to spread no further. This policy, of course, would eventually lead to the Korean and Vietnam Wars, so not an ice-cold Cold War. Cold War is, fun fact, more of a description of the era, it turns out, than an actual Cold War. The Cold War also led to an arms race, the CIA, the National Security Council, and of course, America as essentially the watchdogs for the spread of communism. By 1950, it became West versus East, capitalistic freedom versus communistic totalitarianism, freedom versus tyranny. This, of course, is a majorly oversimplified version of how this all came about, but this is pretty much what you need to know about what was happening for the purpose of this month's content. Because of all of this, in the late 1940s, Americans had been whipped up into a frenzy over communism for the second time in 50 years during a period known as the Second Red Scare. Slightly before World War II, a committee which became known as the House Un-American Activities Commission, or HUAC as I'll be referring to it for the rest of the episode, had been founded to seek out communists and fascists, though the former kind of took a backseat during World War II. But now, as communists became the U.S.'s sworn enemies once more, HUAC would begin its campaign of proving that communists were infiltrating America and were trying to taint the country with their anti-American ideations. Now, if you're on the younger side of my listeners, or didn't pay attention too much in American history class, or you're not American at all, here's how that part of this mess started. The news media and politicians, as well as rich businessmen, not liking some of the changes that were occurring before the war and after the war, portrayed these war Soviets as monsters hell-bent on spreading communism the world over. You see, in communist nations, people are not allowed to own land, follow their own religious beliefs, or speak or act freely without the risk of government prosecution if they do something that's considered illegal. And being able to do all those things are pretty much the foundations of America. And just to be thorough, but to also majorly oversimplify because I'm not qualified to go into the politics of much, if you don't know what communism is, it's essentially a political theory derived from Karl Marx, which advocates class war and in theory should yield a society in which all property is publicly owned, so everybody owns everything and nobody owns anything, and each person works and is paid according to their abilities and needs, so everybody is equal. This is not really what happens, but this is what in theory is supposed to happen. 
Many Americans were afraid that the Soviets would successfully invade the United States and take away their freedoms and implement communism, therefore killing the American way of life. Reports that anyone in the U.S. was actively trying to make this a thing had absolutely no concrete evidence, basically because there was none. Basically, in short, it was Soviet Russia bad, America good, Soviet Russia want to make America bad, Americans scared of becoming bad. After the Soviets developed an atomic bomb with the help of information stolen from the United States, some politicians, especially Senator Joseph McCarthy, set out to find and expose suspected communists wherever they may be. This crusade, driven by mostly manufactured fear, would take many twists and turns. And one of these took McCarthyism, which was the name given to the campaign of outing communists in all its forms in the U.S., to Tinseltown. But before we get to that, let's go back to the early 1930s at the height of Hollywood's golden age. Most films made at this time were super upbeat and happy to allow moviegoers a type of escapism, at least for a brief moment, from the hardships of the Great Depression. There weren't a substantial amount of political or socially aware films being made at this time, at least not in Hollywood, as the industry as a whole viewed itself more as a way to entertain, not to inform or persuade. And anyway, nobody wanted a bummer film at this time. Shit was bleak. A quarter of the workforce was unemployed. And just with everything else going on, many believed that the foundations of the United States, just whatever, everything that, you know, that the founding fathers had done, it failed. And they needed to change something to get out of the Great Depression. With this pessimism and the United States recognizing the USSR as a country in 1933, Communist Party membership in the U.S. went up. This would include many of the future members of the Hollywood Blacklist joining, several of whom would join in college as idealistic youths watching society literally crumble around them, and communism appeared to be, at least to them at this time, something that provided a decent shot at change. With Franklin D. Roosevelt's implementation of the New Deal in 1933, which was a series of programs aimed to get America out of the Great Depression, this led to an era of promise, though an era that was slowly becoming overshadowed by the growing unrest across the pond. It was also an era of social upheaval, as many demanded unemployment insurance, food, and housing to help those less fortunate. Also during this time, several trade industries were unionizing as they were becoming disgruntled with the working conditions and pay they were experiencing, leading to strikes which often turned violent. By the end of the decade, the U.S. had the highest level of organized labor violence in the world. Hollywood would follow suit and unionize several of its craft guilds, which would lead to deep tensions between the studio moguls, producers, and their crews and employees that would eventually join the picket lines. Now, there had been rumblings of communist individuals in Hollywood since before World War II, which really kicked up when two major guilds went on strike in the 1930s. These were an animation guild strike at Flesher Studios, as well as a screenwriters guild strike. These guilds had scores of skilled workers whom were just asking to be treated with a modicum of dignity and to be paid what they were worth and just to basically just get some da goddamn respect. These strikes, in which disgruntled workers exercised their right to freedom of assembly, would soon be blamed on communistic influence by the powerful men in Hollywood they were going up against. Also, several American writers and filmmakers, even before World War II, had started trying to get the film industry to make films on these growing social issues that were happening around them, as well as anti-Nazi films as Hitler's power and terror took root in Europe. 
But every studio, except for really Warner Brothers in these early years, opted to stay out of them for fear of retaliation, whether it be from anti-communist stateside or from Nazi Germany, who had already warned them not to make anti-Nazi films. Warner Brothers, for a while there, was really at the forefront of socially conscious films, with... For example, I Was a Fugitive in a Chain Gang from 1932, which helped pass prison reforms upon its release. When Warner Brothers dared to make the film Confessions of a Nazi Spy, which released in 1939, Jack Warner received threatening packages in the mail and warnings to not complete the film, so there was a precedent for these potential consequences. This wasn't just like an irrational fear, there was concrete proof that somebody was pissed. Even after the war started, not much changed. A few B-movies, but nothing substantial, save for maybe 1940s The Great Dictator starring Charlie Chaplin. The films are also being constricted by the Hayes Code, a self-imposed industry set of guidelines for motion pictures that had been in place since 1934. And the Hayes Code restricted films, didn't ban them, but did heavily restrict them from saying things that were highly critical of public institutions, namely the government in this case. That was, of course, until the United States entered World War do and the government needed a way for the American people to get behind the war effort and the war in general that the government had just spent the first three years of saying they weren't going to get involved in. Before that, though, in 1938 in D.C., under then-chairman Martin Dice Jr., the newly minted HUAC was initially formed to investigate reports of Nazism and communism in Berlin and Moscow, respectively. This was done in part due to a small number of Americans deciding to fight on the communist side of the Spanish Civil War in 1936 under the Abraham Lincoln Battalion. General Francisco Franco, backed by Mussolini and Hitler, led a revolt against the Republic of Spain, which was communistic at that time. The U.S. government had opted against taking any side in the matter. Since most people hated fascists more than communists, the party saw an increase in membership in Spain, which concerned the United States. Spain would ultimately fall to the fascists in 1938. The U.S. wanted to make sure none of that malarkey, that communist malarkey, happened in the United States. Well, HUAC soon shifted into an investigative committee of House of Representative members who would investigate alleged disloyalty and shady activities of private American citizens, public employees, and those U.S. organizations suspected of having either fascist or communist ties. While it initially started investigating federal employees and programs, it soon spread across to other industries. One of these early first targets was, of course, Hollywood, specifically their anti-Nazi league, whom they accused of warmongering by making these anti-Nazi films, as well as their stances on civil rights and labor issues, which were a little too close to communism for HUAC's comfort. HUAC would ultimately release a report in 1938 claiming that communism was rampant in Hollywood. Was there proof of this? Of course there wasn't. A series of hearings occurred, but not a whole hell of a lot came out of it this first round. Martin Dies <laughs> was a smidge of an anti-Semite, as in he was a big old anti-Semite, and was not that great at hiding his disdain of the Jewish people or keeping it out of these early hearings, and Jewish individuals were largely the head of studios or producers, and nobody's going to help out somebody who's actively being intolerant towards them. And also at this time, for obvious reasons, Jewish people were worried about the Nazis way more than commies, so this felt like the least of their problems. 
Without the support of the heads of Hollywood, Huac kind of died on the vine in Tinseltown. In fact, several of the moguls would be called to D.C. in September of 1941 to defend their anti-Nazi films that were slowly being released. But the hearings quickly derailed as the moguls informed them that their films didn't even show a fraction of what was actually happening in Germany at that time. Further, in 1940, Dyes privately took testimony from a former Communist Party member, John L. Leach, whom named 42 film industry professionals as communists. After Leach repeated these charges in confidence to a Los Angeles grand jury, many of these names were released in the press, of course they were, including those of movie stars Humphrey Bogart, James Cagney, and Katherine Hepburn. Dice said he would clear all of those who cooperated by meeting with him in what he called executive session. Within two weeks of the grand jury leak, nearly all those on the list met with Dyes, whom cleared everyone except actor Lionel Stander, who was fired by his movie studio Republic Pictures as a result. Also in 1941, Walt Disney took out a one-page ad in the trade paper Variety accusing communists of being responsible for the current strike at his studio. His non-unionized cartoonists and animators, sick of the highly policed hierarchy and wildly varying salaries on the lot, demanded a change that Disney would not provide, so the animators went on strike for four months. Disney claimed that communists had convinced them to do this. They would never have done this on their own volition because they loved him so much. He was Uncle Walt. In reality, communism was not a play here at all. It was just a lot of people sick of their boss's bullshit and whom were pushed to the brink to see some change made. The right to assembly is supposed to be protected in our constitution, but I guess Disney didn't see it that way because it affected his bottom line negatively. With Disney's baseless accusations of communism infiltrating his studio, the genie was out of the bottle. Not long after, Jack Tenney, the chairman of the California State Legislature's Joint Fact-Finding Committee of Un-American Activities, all of these have really, really concise names, don't they? Launched an investigation of, quote, reds in movies. The probe fell ultimately flat, however, and was mocked in several variety headlines as a result. When the U.S. finally entered World War II on December 7, 1941, by declaring war on the Japanese Empire after the attack on Pearl Harbor, the country found themselves directly up against a more dire foe, the fascists and Nazism, and they needed the help of the Soviet Union to deal with that whole situation. You know, a country they'd been talking hella shit about for decades. But for this one hot minute, all was well with the communists. In fact, during this time, the membership of the Communist Party in the U.S. reached its peak of around 50 to 100,000 active members, depending on the source. To give perspective on this number, there were more Irish Catholics in New York City at this time than members of the Communist Party in the entire country. For the first and really only time in American history, Washington and Hollywood joined forces to collaborate in creating pro-war content. Labor conflicts were set aside for the most part as scores of able-bodied individuals from the Hollywood film industry decided to join the war effort. Many others traveled the country, particularly talent, trying to sell war bonds and performed for the troops. Some directors and filmmakers became war correspondences and in doing so revolutionized the art of documentary filmmaking. During this time, the industry produced hundreds of war films, cartoons, newsreels, you name it. And many of the films were written and directed by future Blacklist members as their ideals were close to what the U.S. was fighting against. And all of this was used as propaganda. 
The U.S. government had even provided the studios with a document instructing them on how best to make films that would help the war effort. Wartime cinema was full of attacks on fascism, Nazism, and anti-Semitism while heavily promoting patriotism and the war effort as a whole. Pro-Soviet movies were also made to backtrack some of the mean shit, they said, but a line was drawn in the sand. These films were pro-Soviet Union, not pro-communism. As the war raged on, HUAC hibernated. But then, of course, when the war came to an end in 1945, perception on communism flip-flopped once more. The alliance between the Western democracies and the Soviet Union collapsed very shortly after the end of World War II. During a speech in Fulton, Missouri, British Prime Minister Winston Churchill told Americans of the Iron Curtain that had fallen in Europe between the communist countries and the rest of the world to prevent anybody from influencing the other. By this time, President Truman had already created his own communist vetting system and demanded that all federal employees take an oath of loyalty against communism. There were even calls to outlaw the American Communist Party altogether, which is against the First Amendment, but as you'll soon hear, that happened a lot throughout this whole thing. Fear gave the American people a mental block on constitutional rights when it came to communism. The growth of conservative political influence after World War II led to the Republican Party taking control of both the House of Representatives and the Senate in 1946. This further led to the revival of exposing communists, which of course was publicly overseen by the no longer dormant HUAC. Chairman J. Parnell Thomas, whom had promised to expose Hollywood for the commie cesspool he was certain it was, was made the head of HUAC. Before World War II had ended, though it was actively winding down, another strike broke out in Hollywood in 1945 against IOTSE, which is the union for crew members, and the more radical union for the same thing at the time CSU, which was the Conference of Studio Unions. On October 5th of that year, a day that would become known as Hollywood Black Friday, a bloody fight broke out against the labor, management, and law enforcement outside of the gates of Warner Brothers, which led to a lot of cracked bones and blood, but somehow no deaths. Violence against these two organizations would continue for two years as police used extreme methods to break up these violent protests. IOTSE, which was backed by the studios, had taken up the anti-communist stance, and CSU, which was a little bit more extreme, was seen as more communistic. All of this scrapping continued into 1947. As strikes continued to rage in Hollywood, all were ultimately blamed on communistic interference. Despite the growing intolerance of communists, the extreme left writers were still in hot demand as films exploring domestic social issues like racism and corruption became popular and the old, more conservative dudes that made the happy-go-lucky films from the before times just couldn't write good enough scripts to meet this need. These previously taboo subjects were brought to the silver screen in a major way for the first time post-World War II and many critiqued social issues in America and how we were not handling a lot of it all that well. And as a result of this, some people thought that these films exploring these social issues in this manner, in a very candid manner, were beneficial to the communist way of thinking. Actress-turned-gossip columnist Hedda Hopper was one of the loudest critics of these films. She believed that any film critical of anything going on in America, whether it be racism or mistreatment in the prison system or, God forbid, the government, was a sign of communistic influence in the industry. All of these kinds of accusations continued to whip up a flurry of paranoia that communism was in Hollywood. 
In May of 1947, committee investigators for HUAC were invited by a conservative anti-communist group of motion picture professionals for a series of private sessions on the matter of communism in Hollywood. Five months later, in October 1947, after those closed-door hearings, the House Un-American Activities Committee subpoenaed a number of individuals working in the Hollywood film industry to testify at a series of public hearings which would take place in Washington, D.C., The committee had declared its intention to investigate whether or not communist agents and or sympathizers were trying to take over the entire industry via the labor unions and corrupt decent Americans through messages in their films. Having seen the power of a Hollywood picture during World War II, the U.S. government was all too aware that film was a powerful force for change, one that if placed in the hands of a communist, for example, could sway the opinion of the American people. The Hollywood HUAC trials kicked off with a week of testimony given by 20 anti-communist members of the industry in October of 1947. Many of them were part of the MPA, the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals, which was founded to prevent left-wing ideations from getting into movies and to support producers during the strikes. That entire week, they tried to get the committee to back up their beliefs while not providing anything other than anecdotal evidence. This group and any others that cooperated with HUAC became known as the Friendlies, and we'll cover what happened to several of them after the hearings in detail next week. So-called Friendlies included Walt Disney, Louis B. Mayer, Ronald Reagan, and Gary Cooper. With their testimonies, they threw many of their fellow industrymen and women under the bus without any real proof other than their own opinions, which were typically made by hearing someone run their mouth at some point or having heard a rumor. Keep in mind, these were mainly people who were super pissed that their employees were or had gone on strike for the way that they'd been treated by these men. Further, when asked to name people they believed to be communists, not people they knew were communists, just people they thought might be, many happily gave up names based solely on their opinion. Jack Warner informed the committee in his opening statement that everything he was about to say was of his own opinion and not based on facts. After the first week of hearings, 19 subpoenaed members of the Hollywood community whom were suspected communists were called to Washington. Only 11 were ultimately summoned into the chambers, 10 screenwriters and one director, and the first 10 refused to cooperate during these hearings in protest. They believed, frankly correctly, if the system had been working like it was supposed to, that their constitutional rights were being violated by their being summoned to these hearings on suspicion of being a communist without being presented any evidence, also without it being a crime. The 11th member that was summoned to the chamber, Bertolt Brecht, entered the chamber, denied being a communist, and then left the country altogether. By the by, for what it's worth, and it's not worth a lot, according to former HUAC investigator William Wheeler, the committee had allegedly obtained proof that the 19 were or had been communists due to HUAC getting a hold of their membership cards, which sounds damning until you learn that the cards did not have their actual names on them, but rather aliases, like John Doe, which was the example Wheeler gave in the documentary that I saw this in, But don't worry, there was a code sheet they had too that apparently also told HUAC who the aliases actually were, which kind of defeats the purpose of an alias at all, doesn't it? Let's be honest, this whole thing was probably bullshit, a weak tactic to try and legitimize these hearings. To support their subpoenaed colleagues, a number of liberal-leaning Hollywood stars who were not communists founded the Committee of the First Amendment and showed up in Washington, D.C. to show their support. Each one of them risked their entire career in an attempt to sway public opinion against the HUAC 
hearings. This included Humphrey Bogart and his wife, Lauren Bacall. This would be a short-lived organization, and you'll soon see why. The 10 that refused to cooperate, again, citing their First Amendment rights to freedom of speech and assembly, stated in their own ways during the hearings that they shouldn't have to defend or be persecuted due to their political beliefs in an American anything. They were supposed to be protected from this by the First Amendment. If they were asked anything during the hearings that they felt was in a violation of the First Amendment, they would merely refuse to answer or give a smart intellectual writer's level quip, which again was their right as Americans, again, if the system was not overloaded by fear-mongering at the time. The Ten had done nothing legally wrong and felt confident that exercising their rights would be defended in judicial courts if it came to that. Among the many questions asked of these witnesses, I guess we'll call them witnesses for lack of a better term, that they refused to answer was, quote, Are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? When many of the subpoena asked for what proof the committee had to accuse them of this, as you heard earlier and well later, they were pretty much told in so many words that the committee didn't have to show that to any of them. Keep in mind, this was not a trial. This was merely a hearing, though you'd never know it by listening or reading the proceedings. There were also attempts by HUAC to delegitimize the Screenwriters Guild and expose it as a hiding place for communists, which the 10 refused to entertain for the committee. It was a circus through and through, and all 10 of the men were labeled as unfriendlies. Eventually, HUAC formally accused the remaining 10 of the 11 whom testified in contempt of Congress and began criminal proceedings against them in the House of Representatives. These cases were a long, dragged-out affair and took years. Eventually, the justice system failed to protect these men's First Amendment rights, and this mess went all the way to the Supreme Court, whom also failed them, and eight of the 10 would serve nine months in prison, the other two six months. These men were labeled the Hollywood 10, and we'll get into what happened to them and other members of the Hollywood blacklist after these proceedings in a couple of weeks. After nine days of hearings, the committee adjourned a day early. That Sunday, the Committee of the First Amendment bought time on ABC Radio. Humphrey Bogart recounted what he saw in the courtroom on those days. We sat in the committee room and heard it happen. We saw it. We said to ourselves, it can happen here. We saw American citizens denied the right to speak by elected representatives of the people. We saw police take citizens from the stand like criminals after they'd been refused the right to defend themselves. We saw the gavel of a committee chairman cutting off the words of free Americans. The sound of that gavel, Mr. Thomas, rings across America. Because every time your gavel struck, it hit the First Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. Not long after making this statement, Bogart would call his trip to Washington, D.C., quote, ill-advised. This was likely done to preserve his career and to not be labeled a communist sympathizer. Less than a month after the hearings on November 25th, 1947, the heads of the major film studios met at the Waldorf Astoria in New York City to issue a statement. It basically said that they would no longer employ any of the Hollywood 10 until such a time that they could prove that they weren't communists and to sign an oath stating such. This would include any further individuals whom were revealed to be anti-American. Support for those being persecuted quickly faded away for fear of being the next to be barred. 
And yes, the people that were accused of being communists either were or had been communists for the most part. But that was not officially what they were quote unquote in trouble for because that was against the law. You can't prosecute someone for being a communist. But it was at the end of the day ultimately what they got punished for, let's be honest. The naughty thing that they supposedly did was be in contempt of Congress, which they were in contempt of a Congress that was in contempt of the First Amendment. So, you know, it's it's a it's a freaking mess. This whole thing is a mess. Proof that anyone had gotten their quote unquote communist messages into films or that communists had infiltrated the unions was never proven in a substantial way. You know why? In the case of the studios, the majority of them were owned by conservative individuals like Disney and Louis B. Mayer, who would have never let a film with blatant communistic ideas see the light of day. It just wouldn't happen. And then independent filmmaking that you'd be like, oh, maybe that. Well, that was pretty much non-existent at this time because of the studio system. So there was little to no chance of a major communistic film getting made at all. It was next. It was basically impossible. And when it comes to the unions, I mean, you can't treat people like shit while paying them shit and just expect them to continue to roll in their own shit while you're living it up in the Hollywood Hills and have the people in the shit just be perpetually cool with that. Eventually, people are going to reach a breaking point and political ideations has very little to do with that, if anything. In 1950, Congress had passed the McCarran Internal Security Act in which all communists had to register with the government. In doing so, the government could monitor pretty much everything that person on the register did down to how they spent their money and what they did on the daily. It also made it a felony to try and implement any kind of totalitarian government in the United States. I guess they, they must not have like a sense of irony at all, right? Like that's that's what's happening. I'm not trying to make this political, but Jesus Christ. And then worst of all, with the McCarran Internal Security Act, if the president willed it in a time of war or other countrywide emergency, anybody that was on that list would be thrown into a detention camp. There were talks of uh, fixing up the ones used for Japanese Americans and Japanese immigrants during World War II, which is its own horrible thing that, you know, we don't have time for today. Again, all of this is super illegal because of the First Amendment, despite or perhaps because of the fact that they'd found no concrete evidence of communism the first time. The second series of Hollywood Hewitt hearings kicked off in 1951 as American soldiers fought communists overseas during the Korean War. Also at this time, the Democratic administration was taking heat as they were being blamed for allowing China to fall to communism. Chairman Thomas had been removed as chairman of Hewitt in 1948, as the New Jersey Republican had been accused and ultimately convicted of attempting to defraud the government. He was padding his payroll, it turned out. In a twist of sweet poetic justice, two of his prison mates were members of the Hollywood Ten. So the second round of HUAC hearings was overseen instead by John Stevens Wood, a Democrat from Georgia. In Hollywood, the studios had completely bent to the will of HUAC, though I'm sure some, if not most, didn't need much convincing. To further appease the U.S. government, every major studio in Hollywood, except for Universal International Pictures, made anti-communist and or anti-Soviet propaganda films. This included RKO's I Married a Communist from 1949 and MGM's The Red Danube from the same year. I think that's how you say Danube. Might be wrong. All public support for the Hollywood had faded by 1951. 
Ten further witnesses were called by HUAC starting on March 21st, 1951, including actor Larry Parks, an apprehensively called witness as he was a former communist. And even though he admitted to it and agreed to name names to save his career, he was blacklisted all the same, despite being promised that that wouldn't happen if he gave testimony. Parks never worked in Hollywood again. During this second wave of hearings, the legal tactics of those refusing to cooperate or to name names had evolved. Instead of relying on the First Amendment to protect them, because that clearly hadn't worked, they tried the Fifth Amendment, which is supposed to protect oneself against self-incrimination. The Hollywood Ten had opted against using the Fifth during their testimonies, as they believed that the justice system would be on their side. By the by, in case I didn't mention it yet, I can't remember, at no point during any of these hearings was being a communist illegal in the United States. It was just a political ideation. So while this new trick up their sleeves protected those being called to the stand from naming names or being indicted for contempt of Congress, pleading the fifth before HUAC pretty much guaranteed a spot on the soon-to-be-established Hollywood blacklist. If someone found themselves on the blacklist or in the sights of HUAC at all, many filmmakers and performers fled Hollywood, with some finding work in Europe or Mexico. Others relocated to New York City, where few in power cared about whether or not the writers or filmmakers they hired were communists. Eventually, the blacklisted found ways to talk about what was happening to them without blatantly creating content about the HUAC trials, because that would have not gone over well. The most famous example of this is, of course, Arthur Miller's The Crucible, which compared McCarthyism to the Salem witch trials. We'll talk more on all of this and the legacy of the HUAC trials in a few weeks. Edward Dimitrik, whom had been one of the Hollywood Ten, admitted to being a communist while in prison and renounced the party. Then on April 25th, 1951, Dimitrik appeared before HUAC for the second time, this time answering any and all questions the committee had for him. He spoke of his own brief party membership in 1945 and named other party members, including seven film directors and 15 other Hollywood professionals. He said he was prompted to change his mind after the discovery of spies in the U.S. and Canada, as well as the invasion of South Korea. Further, he stated that several screenwriters, which he also named, had pressured him into including communist elements into his films. His testimony damaged several court cases that others of the ten had filed, basically just chucking him under the bus to save his own skin. In all, he named 24 individuals. Later, Dimitri claimed he did this for his family's well-being. I guess the others and their families could just F off. Famously, director Elia Kazan sang like a canary when his time came to testify. He and screenwriter Bud Schulberg's testimonies would force dozens of artists out of Hollywood. Great way to get work, scare everybody out of town. As hundreds of individuals continued to be called to testify, many of whom had never even been communists themselves, like actor John Garfield, refused to cooperate by naming names. This began the era of the blacklist. So what exactly was the Hollywood blacklist? Well, it's a little convoluted because there's layers to it, but essentially there was an official quote-unquote blacklist which featured names of those who were called by HUAC and whom ultimately refused to cooperate and or were identified as communists in the hearings. As a result, they were no longer permitted to work in Hollywood. Then there was also a less official so-called gray list, which featured individuals who were denied work because of their political or personal affiliations, whether real or imagined or rumored, it mattered very 
very little. The consequences were the same as those on the blacklist. The only major difference appears to be that the graylist individuals, they couldn't work at the big studios, but they were able to find work on Poverty Row, which was the name for the tiny studios in Hollywood, which included Republic Pictures and Monogram Pictures. Altogether, there were about 500 names on the black and gray lists of individuals that were barred from working in the film industry. The U.S. government couldn't convict anybody of being a communist, though they really, really clearly wanted to, but they had found a way to ensure that these people's livelihoods were snatched away overnight. Only about 10% of those blacklisted ever succeeded in rebuilding their careers in any way within the entertainment industry. More about this again in a couple weeks. The Hewitt Committee and Joseph McCarthy's eventual Congress subcommittee reached into every corner of the film industry searching for communists. With all of this probing, there was still no substantial concrete proof that ever came to light that communists were using Hollywood films or anything else to spread their beliefs. And there never was because there never was. After leaving Hollywood in shambles, HUAC and McCarthyism raged on all over the United States with unconstitutionally unchecked power until around 1954 when Joseph McCarthy had turned his eyes on the U.S. Army. While watching him rage on at soldiers on television, the public at large turned on him as a result. Then and only then did his fellow congressmen finally muzzle him. McCarthy died three years later at the age of 48. With anti-communism's biggest mouthpiece gone, despite having never been a member of the House nor the HUAC, his loss of influence led to a loss of power for the HUAC committee, though it would not be disbanded until 1975. By 1959, the HUAC was being denounced by former President Truman as, quote, the most un-American thing in the country today, oh the irony. Even though, as I said, McCarthy had never been a member of HUAC, his extreme beliefs, coupled with American fear, had given them their power. Power that had taken fundamental rights from innocent Americans. At the end of the day, artistic expression was censored with fear and intimidation by a government whom was supposed to protect free speech as one of its foundational beliefs. The effects of the blacklist were felt for decades after the hearings ended, shaping the types of films that came out of Hollywood. Years of vapid movies about nothing, action films and musicals with no substance were released, as the studios feared anything more substantial would see them in hot water once more. This series of milquetoast movies was also because the industry had lost dozens of their most powerful voices and performers for the time being, and studios scrambled to pick up the pieces of a mess many of the moguls had helped make. While breaks in the blacklist would occur years later, many were forced to do so under pseudonyms in the early years. Film studios would struggle for well over a decade as losing the right to own theaters in 1949, the shallow content of their films due to the fear of HUAC, and the invention of the television caused a severe drop in movie-going attendance, which would lead to an even bigger drop in film studio revenue. Hollywood would not really start to recover from these trials until the late 1960s, early 1970s, though some film historians claim that the film industry has never fully recovered. Uh, Mr. Bieberman, are you a member of the Screenwriters Guild or have you ever been a member of the Screenwriters Guild? Now, Mr. Stripling, I would like to reply to this very quietly, Mr. Chairman also. If I will not be interrupted, I will attempt to give you a full answer to this question. It has become very clear to me that the real purpose of this investigation... That is not... Why, that is worth... 
Mr. Bieberman. Mr. Bieberman. Go ahead, Mr. Bieberman. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Have you ever been a member? Are you a member of the Communist Party? Are you now? Have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? It is perfectly clear to me, gentlemen, that if you continue in this uh, particular Mr. Chairman, will you direct the witness to answer that question? You have only one answer the question. And that is to call the question. in the industry. You're excused. Chaos in the industry. Will you direct the witness to answer that question, Mr. Chairman, before he leaves the stand? I have not refused to answer the question. I told you before I will answer this question now, fully. Now, Mr. Lieberman, Your purpose is to use this to disrupt the motion picture industry. Now, to invade the right not only of me, but of the producers to their thoughts, to their opinions. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media, where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory. And if you have any questions, you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there. And if based on my viewership or listenership, whatever it's called. It looks like some of you all are really doing that. Actually, for like, if you started listening like the last three or four months and you actually listened to this part, like, how did you find me? Because I can't figure it out. And there's been like a big boom and I am super curious. So yeah, just shoot me like a DM or an email. I'm very, very curious. Um, If you'd like to support the podcast, um, I've got a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help out anyway, I'd appreciate it. I've got to buy me a coffee where you just literally buy me a coffee. It's super cute. I've been staying up late <laughs> for the last two weeks writing these episodes, so I've been pounding a lot of coffee. I've also got merch. Check it out. The link in the show notes. Next week, do snitches really get stitches? We'll discuss the friendlies, the people who named names during the HUAC proceedings. Who were they and what happened to them after outing their friends and co-workers? Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap. Don't scab for the bosses, don't listen to their lies. Us poor folks haven't got a chance unless we organize.